Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, hey, our guest this week is one of the most famous and well-respected Buddhist scholars uh, around. He's also hilarious. He's also uh, the father of Uma Thurman, of all things. Um, He's got a wild backstory. He's one of the first Americans to ordain as a Tibetan monk, and now he teaches at Columbia University. He's written a bunch of books, uh, which I recommend and which you will hear about uh, as we proceed through the podcast. Uh, he, he will make you laugh. He will really make you think. And he also, he's very close with the Dalai Lama, and he's got this new graphic novel out about the Dalai Lama. He'll talk about that as well. Uh, so I give you Robert Thurman. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I would love to just get a sense of your personal history. How did you get into this whole meditation uh, slash Buddhism? Well, thought? I don't know. I was um, I was a restless child. Uh, grew up in New York here, St. Bernard's, Phillips Exeter, Harvard. Even I ran away from Phillips Exeter actually in my senior year to join the Castro Revolution. And the luckily, Castro Revolution. Yes, yes. And luckily, they refused my recruitment. I was like uh, very skinny. You know, I was a lacrosse player, six three, hundred and fifty pounds. Very, very skinny. And they said, oh, Don Quixote is coming to save us. So you went to Cuba and they no, turned you No, I know. Away? I went to Miami. Okay. They were recruiting there. <clears throat> and uh, they said, no, thank heavens, I'd be dead, you know. So that I was like that, you know. I, I was trying to break out of, uh, of the, you know, wasp thing. And uh, then um, in my senior year at Harvard, I had a similar event and I went to India. Then I met Dalai Lama, and in the, I was reading Buddhism and all sorts of things at, as an undergraduate at Harvard. And then in '61, I just left and I went to India. And uh, as soon as I met the Tibetans, I was home. And uh, so I've been studying that ever since. What about the Tibetans made you feel like you were well, home? Well, they had, I actually was going to India. I felt India had a different knowledge that we don't have in the West. What what I later learned was called inner science, science of emotions. You know, even the body, like which is actually yoga, is a product of, and uh, their uh, natural medicine that they have, Ayurveda, and so on. So I was looking for India and Buddhism, but then the Indians didn't know Buddhism, and the Tibetans had just fled a couple of years ago, the exiles, a couple of years before that, and they did know Buddhism. And then I read all the great Indian masters in Tibetan translations first. And uh, learned the language really quickly and met the Dalai Lama. You learned, so you speak Tibetan? Yeah, yeah. And well, now I can barely speak English, as you'll notice <laughs> as we go along at my age. But yes, I am fluent. In You're Tibetan. not old. You're 74? 75. What do you mean? That's a lot not of my old. friends are dead. Yeah, well, that happens to everybody, but, but 75 <laughs> is not old in my opinion. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. That makes me 2% happier. I'm, <laughs> I'm working up toward 10. By the end of this interview, you'll be at 10 <laughs> Maybe minimum. 12. Minimum. <laughs> Uh, well. So, so you, you're in your early 20s, you're hanging out with the Tibetans, you're learning Tibetan, yeah. and, and, and you ordained as a monk. I a monk. I wanted to become a monk because <clears throat> that's all I wanted to do. I was so excited. I was more than 10% happier, actually, <laughs> at that time. I was ecstatic learning Tibetan. I, I was speaking fairly fluently in 10 weeks. Wow. And, um, you know, I was good in languages, but it was unusual, really. I just took to it. And, uh, you know, nowadays, anyone would say previous life, you know. And uh, um, so that was totally great. And then uh, mainly, unfortunately, and I didn't learn Hindi. And I did eventually learn Sanskrit when I came back to school. Because after my old original monk teacher didn't want me to be a monk. He said that uh, you're not going to stay a monk. 
It's just not your thing, you know. And he was 60-something. I was 20-something. And I said, yes, I am, you know. So then finally they let me be a monk. But he was right. And, um, you know, activism, you know, that was the mid-60s. My friends were all marching against the war, doing civil rights protests, things like that. I came out as a monk in my robes, what Uma calls looking like Henry Miller in drag. But she later <laughs> <laughs> described it. Uma Thurman being your daughter. Yes, yes. Okay. And, uh, you know, because I had a shaved head and, uh, you know, my, my lacrosse battered head was all shaved with all its bumps. And um, so uh, uh, my, then my t- the teacher, at the, there was a little monastery in New Jersey in the Mongolian community there, a Tibetan monastery. And he said, you can't come and go like that in this country, you know. This is not Vietnam, you know. You can't go and immolate yourself or something to stop the war or something. So you either go out there and be an American or stay here and be a Tibetan monk, he said. Then he did one night. He popped a question to me. He said, do you know anyone who really wants a white monk? (laughs) 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 And I had to, it sort of clicked something. And I realized, you know, Tibetans wanted Americans to help them in their refugee plight, you know, and struggle with China. And the Americans didn't know what a what a Buddhist monk in those days, they, you know, like Matthew Ricard, we have people now, but in those days they didn't know that. So it's true, I didn't fit anywhere very well. Was part of taking off the robes a desire to have children get married? No, not really. I had been, I was married at 17. I was married very young. At 17? Yeah, so 18 maybe. But we got together and I was 17. Wife was 25. This is like <laughs> reverse Jerry Lee Lewis. I know. What, what reverse happened? Reverse Buddha, I think. Well, I don't know. I was a teenage bridegroom. What can I say? You know, and, who was this twenty-five-year-old uh, who was very in love? Who who was and, this person? Oh, she was a very nice lady, French-American lady. lived lived here in New York. Older sister of a close friend of mine from school. Okay. So we had a great time. You know, as an affair, we we're having an awesome time. And then, uh, and then it turned more serious, and the family wanted it. My, mine didn't much want it, but theirs did. And so we married, and we had a daughter. I tried to take them with me originally to India, but they wouldn't go. So then we separated and so on. So I wasn't re-seeking marriage, really. But then, unfortunately, once I was ex-monk, I did meet my wife, a present wife, and uh, fell in love again. And um, we were voted least likely to succeed <laughs> because she was a Ford model, and a spirit, but a very spiritual person, but had been a Ford model from Sweden. you know. And we met, and uh, we fell in love, and... Um, maybe I fell more in love than she, but I don't know. She would probably contest that, consider it my obtuseness. And we celebrate our 50th anniversary next year. Congratulations. Thank you. That's no small feat. It is. Uh, uh, so one child from the first marriage and how many from the second? Four. So five kids running around. Yeah, yeah. And Uma was from the second? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uma's, Uma's. If I recall, there was an accident in a pool that also changed the trajectory. Uh, well, yeah, that, that, that is, that's what helped me leave Harvard again. Uh, I wasn't in a pool, but I was in a garage, but I lost an eye. And that was an impermanence thing and made me decide my Buddhist reading, my my Hermann Hesse reading, you know, the Siddhartha type of thing, Buddhist text, and uh, Nietzsche and things like that, that I should act on that. You know, instead of floating along in a kind of wasp career of some kind, you know, Exeter Harvard career, whatever it might have been, maybe diplomat or something, Instead of floating along in that, in a civilization I thought had problems, even then, uh, and having it as a side thing and maybe then getting to it in a midlife crisis, I might have. 
But losing the eye was like an impermanent shock. And um, and therefore, I decided I had to act dead. And then that's when then my, I wanted to take my wife and daughter with a jeep. You know, we had enough money. Take them with a jeep and everything and go to India and look for the Dharma. And uh, there were no hippies then. You know, it was a, I think Allen Ginsberg and Gary, Gary had been already, Gary Snyder. But very few people had been had been starting that whole flood to flow to India. The Beatles hadn't gone there yet type of thing, you know. To see Maharishi, right, you know? right. So you were ahead of the curve. Yeah, a little bit ahead of the curve there. But uh, so then we separated that, and then uh, then the, I became a Tibetanized. You know? Once, so I'm jumping around a little bit in the chronology. No, but okay. once you became a monk, and then unbecame a monk, yeah. and then got married again, you became a a scholar. Yeah. Well, then I realized the only way I could do what I wanted to be a monk about, which was study and meditate and do Buddhism, you know, at every level. Uh, all my life. The only way to do that as a lay person in America was, and support a family, and myself was a professor. You know, So I went back to Harvard and switched majors from English major to uh, to um, Sanskrit and Indian studies. Actually, initially East Asian language, because Tibetan studies was in that department. And then eventually Sanskrit and Indian studies. Very tiny department at Harvard. And has your whole career subsequent to that been at Columbia? or? Uh, no, I was at Amherst College for 15 years. After Harvard, and I would used to moonlight at Harvard, actually. And they kind of assumed I would come back there. But my wife refused to go to Cambridge because people don't drive well in Cambridge. They're all like thinking many things and heads up in the air, and they go through stop signs, you know. <laughs> and you have to be really careful. I grew, up in, I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, and I can tell you that the bad driving is uh, endemic to the entire metro area. It's not just Cambridge. <laughs> I see. Okay. <clears throat> That's probably true, yes. And I was undergraduate there, so I was familiar with the place. Anyway, um, Columbia was, uh, I never studied there, but it's the place in New York, right? And uh, then we were doing Tibet House. The Dalai Lama asked me and Richard Gere to start Tibet House here in New York. You know, it's a cultural preservation thing. So it's much more convenient to come to back to the homeland, you know, get out of Massachusetts. So you mentioned Tibet House. Can you give me a, uh, give us a fuller Oh, sure. Yeah, of what Tibet that House is? U.S. is um, a cultural center of His Holiness Dalai Lama in America. And um, our job is to make the culture known, to um, let people basically, you know, some the political organization has a free Tibet um, motto or save Tibet. And then there's some who have a free Tibet motto. Then um, there's a, a refugee help group called Tibet Fund that is uh, channels money from the U.S. government to Tibetan refugees in exile, pretty much a little bit in Tibet, mostly in exile. And uh, then ours, our motto is love Tibet. So it's to sort of introduce new people to what it was, its own culture. Because, if, you know, the Chinese, it's nothing really personal. It's just that they know, even though they weren't members of the U.N. when Mao first invaded, or Taiwan was, they knew that you're not supposed to have um, to fr- infringe boundaries, you know, after the UN is founded, right? Like, you know, Saddam Hussein in Kuwait type of thing. You know, you're not supposed to do that. So they have to pretend Tibet has par- always been part of China, and they have been doing that steadily. They still do. But it isn't, actually. And they live at high altitude. They have special physiology, you know. They have weird chemistry in their lungs for the small amount of oxygen that's there. And so it ends up where they have to try to make sure that Tibetan culture, which is very different from Chinese culture, is not known. And it doesn't, you know, so they consider promoting Tibetan culture without making a statement about political situation to be sort of disruptive to them, you know. 
So it's difficult to do that. And they're they're trying to recondition Tibetans to be Chinese, to think they're Chinese, to have a Chinese identity. Which the Chinese are. Yeah, yeah. which doesn't work because they have a long ancient history with China. You know, but Chinese, when the Chinese used to be Buddhist empires, they would patronize Tibet in various ways, protect them sometimes, but they didn't live there and they didn't really own the place. You know, they 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 sort of paid homage to the great teachers there. So the Tibet House started by you, Richard Gere. The 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 idea is to spread Tibetan culture and awareness yeah, of Tibetan culture. Yeah, no. So people get to love and like Tibet. Eventually, even Chinese will decide they like Tibet, and letting the Tibetans be Tibetan within their union will be better for them than trying to change them into you know, ethnocide, what you might call it. Dalai Lama calls it cultural genocide, but I think a better term is ethnocide, which, unfortunately, I invented. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, do you have any—what's your level of optimism about— uh, I'm very optimistic. You are? Absolutely. Because I do really trust um, the basic wisdom of the Chinese people. They were Buddhists for many centuries, very strong Buddhists. They had this issue with communism and atheism and whatever it was and Maoism. And now they're kind of capitalist, but sort of formally still communist, which is a little confusing. And actually underground, they're very into Buddhism, even Christianity, the, where they do that, or Islam, uh, Taoism. You know, they're very into religion. And they're naturally going to be, and they can't make Mao anymore into a religion or Xi Jinping or Deng Xiaoping or any of them. They can't be God anymore, you know, for them. So they're eventually going to do that. And when they do, the Dalai good thing about Dalai Lama is he has staying power. He's promised to live to 113. Did he really promise that? Absolutely. That's very specific. Absolutely. Very specific. Fulfilling an ancient prophecy. And uh, he was nudged toward it, I have to confess, by me, actually, originally. <laughs> but then they found an old Tibetan prophecy about it, and he kind of got into it. But even if he, even if he doesn't, or even after that, he's reborn. You know, and they will recreate, they'll find someone, and he'll still lead them, especially if he's in exile. He's asked if they get back to Tibet before that not to have political duties. And he said, next Dalai Lama should just be back in the monastery. He doesn't want to be in charge of the government. What's a democratic local government within an autonomous Tibet within China and self-rule, what he calls self-rule in their own area? Because they, they, they would be able to do mining or you know, medicine collecting or forestry or whatever in a sustainable way, whereas the colonial kind of thing Chinese have done is very destructive and unsustainable. I, I thought I read that the Dalai Lama said that the next Dalai Lama might be a woman. He did say that little bit humorously, but seriously and humorously combined. It was serious in the sense that he, he's for world peace. He wants 21st century not to be like 20th century with world wars and so on. So he's very strongly, even it didn't start too well, but he's for it strongly. And uh, he thinks women are less likely to use the nuclear option or you know, go ballistic over this or that than the, than the male. So that therefore it might be good to set an example and have Tibetan leader be a woman. I guess he wasn't thinking about the fact he doesn't want to be the leader, but he would be a spiritual leader anyway. So you know, to be a woman would be therefore good. And then the joking part, humorous part, is in Italy. He then made a modeling gesture actually, and he said, "And in that case, I'll be much more beautiful." <laughs> Meaning some and some feminists have taken that badly, like a woman can only be beautiful. But he didn't mean that. He just meant more beautiful than I am. As a as a male person, you know, he meant, but they, I've I've seen there's some bad feedback about that. 
So what's your – you've known him for a long time. Yeah, since uh, – for 52 years. So I, I've interviewed him a couple times. I, yeah. I won't, can't say that I have a close relationship with him or know him personally well. well he, I'm sure he liked you a lot. Uh, he laughed at me a little bit. Um, he did? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, at you? Yeah, at, at me and with me. Um, I, I right. made some comment. We were on stage together in Wisconsin at Richie Davidson, the, oh, the right, eminent right. neuroscientist. He had an event, and yeah. <clears throat> I made a joke about how um, – when uh, not long after we had our first baby, which was uh, just a couple of years ago, oh, uh, congratulations! I, thank you, thank you. Uh, if you want him, I'll give him to you. Um, he, <laughs> a couple of nights after he was born, I, I was telling a joke about how I was standing there in the middle of the night holding this screaming beast, and there was poop everywhere. And I had this thought, which was the title of my next book is going to be everything, and my last book was bull uh, expletive, and. <laughs> The Dalai Lama started to laugh after it was translated for him, and then he turned to me and said, that tells me that your meditation is still in its initial stages. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Excellent. So, oh, so he gave you a teaching. He did give me a teaching. So, I mean, he comes off as a giggly, funny guy, also know, very serious. Yeah. But what, what, what is he really like? Does he, I mean, you ever seen him oh, he's angry? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at me. I've seen at him. you? Sure. Uh, well, when I organize an event or something and then the schedule gets too long or something like that, then he gets a little upset when he gets tired. And uh, he can be a little sharp, you know, and he, he says I used to be, have a hot temper, he says. But, he, but what his, he defines his progress as from years of study and meditation that when he loses it nowadays, it hardly lasts at all. But actually, I haven't seen him really lose it uh, nowadays except maybe briefly just sort of like, Feeling put upon by some kind of confusion of schedule, you know, when people don't manage his because his his schedule is so intense, he gets a little frazzled. Are there politics around him? You oh know? yeah, oh terribly, yeah. Not I mean, not he doesn't tries not to participate, but the people around, you know, it's like a court, and you know, people vie for pay for for access and influence, and you know, they do, and they and they kind of promote themselves by having access and things. People do that, so. And he knows the game, and he tries to keep it under control. You can do a lot of meditating, but we're still <laughs> homo sapiens. Yes, yes. Yeah, Tibetans are very homo sapiens. Um, now, you've got, you, you mentioned to me that you've got a book coming out, your next book. You've, got a, you've written a lot of books, and we'll, we'll talk about some of them as we proceed here. But your next one is called Man of Peace, which is an illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama. It's coming yes. out in hardback on December 10th. Yes. Um, tell me about it. Well, it's, um, I have a friend who, who used to be a student and come to my classes off campus, like at Tibet House or Dharma classes like that, and my non-academic teachings role. And uh, he, his wife, uh, you know, cancer prognosis being a few months even, was prolonged for a few years by the kindness of Dalai Lama many, you know, in the early 90s, in, in that he, somehow he met her and he heard that. And then he said, well, you could check with my physician since the Westerners have given you up, since you still have a will, something like that. And she went to India, and then she lived for a few years comfortably, but then she did pass away. And during the time she had that prolonged life, she was so moved about the Dalai Lama that she started to work on making a graphic novel about his life because she felt that people didn't know the details of what he's been through and what he's like type of thing. So then she passed away, and then my friend, William Myers, and co-author, he worked at it for years, quietly, you know. And then finally, it was totally stymied about 10 years ago, and he brought it to me. And then I saw it as a great thing for Tibet House to do, because in a way, 
<coughs> Dalai Lama is like an ultimate artifact of a Tibetan culture. You know, he's the product of their top educational system of ancient Buddhism. You know, he's been put in a very stressful situation of you know exile and speaking up for people against the whole huge empire. You know, giant country. <laughs> And everybody wants to do business with, everybody's afraid of, and so on. And um, he's done a great job, and he's become then a world, uh, you know, inspiring person. So, um, so, and that's all based on, that's what Tibetan culture can produce out of a human being who was the son of a peasant, you know. You know, log cabin to White House sort of routine, you know, peasant's house in northeast Tibet to, to the Potala. So it's so I saw it as a project for Tibet House, and then this friend he mainly was focused on the Kundun, you know, thing of Dalai Lama just in Tibet and escaping. And then I Kundun? know what, what is Kundun? well, you know, the movie <coughs> Martin yeah. Scorsese made, you know, which is mm-hmm. really just until he escapes first twenty four years of right. Dalai Lama's life. And he didn't really know a lot of the ins and outs of uh, coming to America, dealing with the different presidents, dealing with Chiang Xiaoping, dealing with you know a lot of stuff that has gone on during my fifty years of. The, next 50 years of dealing with the situation as Dalai Lama's close friend. And so then I took as co-author and wrote that part, and I also had to fix up earlier parts and so on. So anyway, it, so we like slowly puttered away at it as <coughs> volunteers. And then finally, uh, one of the Tibet, Tibet House donors very kindly gave a grant to hire a bunch of artists. We then had a Tibetan who was a semi-volunteer was making you know, comic book pages, you know, but then he, he needs to live, and you know we, we were all he couldn't be a volunteer, he's an exile, refugee. So we were making no progress on the art side. And then someone gave a grant when they saw what we'd started with, and then they and we hired a team of six artists, and they did a great job. So is this kind of giving the Dalai Lama a superhero treatment in a way? Uh, yeah, kind of, but different kind of superhero. He's not the Kapow side. The <laughs> other side is the Kapow side. <laughs> you know. Invasion and occupation and prison camps and things like that. We honestly show that, um, although we're not trying to create any kind of anti about anything, you know. But we just to show his greatness in that he's not reacting with that. And even we we deal with the issue where his brothers, several of his brothers, insisted and said they must have a fight, you know. And they had that temporary thing with CIA in the sixties. And um, didn't go, and he said, "No, don't do that." He was he was from '56. He was totally into Gandhi, and Buddhism is into nonviolence. So he said that won't work, both in principle because we're a Buddhist country, and in practice because we we're not in a situation where we can have that level of armament. We we're six million against seven hundred, eight hundred million at the, when it started. You know, when you know, I was surprised when Mao said, "I you know, China stood up now." Chinese, he said, six hundred thousand Chinese have stood up. Now it's one point three billion, and we we all think of them as having just one child, you know, but they must <laughs> have had a few extra. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they must have. Anyway, so so it's a in that sense he's a superhero, and the, where our superhero thing of him comes is, you know, he tells Dubia, don't invade Iraq, please don't react violently, even to nine eleven. Try to negotiate, try to figure out what the problem is, talk to the people, deal with it, you know. Try to tell him that, you know. And even his staff said, oh, you better not write that to him, you know. But he did. And um, and he speaks everywhere in Russia and everywhere, like, let's not have any wars, you know. This is no good, you know. He tried to go to Saddam Hussein, actually, in the 202, but then the other Nobelists wouldn't go with him. And he said, well, as a Buddhist in a Muslim country, I think it's silly for me to go by myself. 
you know, they, he, you know, sometimes they do things as a team. You yeah, know? him and and uh, Desmond Tutu, Tutu and yeah. company. You know, and uh, I think Tutu might have been willing, but some others weren't. So somehow they, it just didn't happen. You know, and so he and he's helped in Northern Ireland. You know, he tries to help wherever he can. He tried to go to Ramallah even more recently, but uh, Chinese told Palestinians they wouldn't help them sell them weapons or whatever it is that they, whoever they talk to. So they blocked it. You know. mm. Nowadays, probably Netanyahu would block it, but in those days, uh, it was blocked by China. He tried to go to Sarajevo. We tried to get him to Sarajevo, actually. There was still shooting going on to kind of introduce something. Tried to start a religion department at University of Sarajevo was what uh, what I cooked up. You know, Dalam was going to come to bless that. But then UN wouldn't guarantee his safety, and they wouldn't let him go. And China protested also. So let's talk Dharma. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Back to 10% happier. No, no, no. This is way beyond 10%. Oh, okay, this is okay. your stuff. My, no, no, I'm, but I'm... I like 10% happier. I just want to put in a plug for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll take a plug anytime. Okay. Um, so I, I come from the, I guess, secular mindfulness and then more uh, sort of Theravadan, old school sure. Buddhism. You know, my teachers sure. are Joseph Goldstein, Sharon sure, Salzberg, sure, sure. Mark Epstein. Yeah. Um, very different from Tibetan Buddhism. Well, sort of, although they all studied Tibetan Buddhism themselves. They did. They and don't so, teach it, but they all studied it. Well, actually, in Joseph, who's my person, you know, direct teacher, yes. there's a, there is actually a significant amount of t- uh, Dzogchen, which is a, a oh, right, flavor right. of Tibetan yes, it is, yes. in, in his teaching. So, right, and but, Mahayana, too, in other words. <clears throat> Dzogchen is Mahayana, yeah. So can you actually just give give me, a, a ba- and, and by extension everybody listening or, or, and or watching, a, a basic primer on the difference between early Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism that's really made its way into American culture in a big way, either right. through these popular writers like Sharon or Mark, yeah. and also through secular mindfulness, which is really derived from this sure early Buddhism. Well, and well, what is the difference know, between uh, that and yeah. Mahayana? Which Ma- mindfulness into? is also completely, you know, chapter and verse in Mahayana, because Theravada is chapter and verse in Mahayana. That's to begin the primer. It's, every Tibetan monk has a Theravada Buddhist vow although it's called Mula Savastivada, but it's one of the branches of Theravada. So, and Theravada has, there were like 10 different branches of Theravada before it localized in Sri Lanka when it was in India. So, so Theravada and Mahayana are really not different. The difference is that the Buddha felt that certain people, it was too much to jump straight into what's called non-duality, like this is Nirvana right now, here on 10% happier. But the reason we're only 10% happier or whatever we are is that we don't know that we're in nirvana. But actually, we're in nirvana and we're still here. Right, That's you, non-duality. You got to say, say more about that because I feel like I'm confused, so everybody's going to be a little confused. What do, you, what do you mean by non-duality? Well, well see, the, the emptiness or selflessness teaching, which is in Theravada as well as in Mahayana, right, which is the ultimate reality teaching of the Buddhas. It's great, great discovery, you know. And uh, is that... There's no absolute outside the web of relativity. In other words, Buddha, Buddha kind of discovered, you know, if you could say absolute relativity, he discovered that. And so absolute relativity is why wisdom becomes compassion, because you don't escape from the other beings, and you therefore have to take care of them. And you're interwoven with them. You're entangled with all the other beings. So whereas... Most religious people think, you know, I'll be with God somewhere outside of the world if they're theistic, if they're, if they're uh, materialists or nihilists, spiritually speaking. 
I'll be outside of this by being nothing, by die, after I die. Or the Theravada Buddhism, what, we, what you could call dualistic Buddhism, is I'll be outside of this in nirvana, which will become final after I die. I could taste it now in life, but then the momentum of my separate embodiment, bumping into things and having things bump into me while I'm still alive will do that, but then I'll go, go back into final nirvana when I die. So in other words, the idea that nirvana or ultimate reality is elsewhere. That's called dualistic. You follow me? Yes, so there's two two things. Uh, there's this world and then there's nirvana, which is a, d- a different thing. That's right. Like two, kind of in, heaven. In Theravada. Yes. And and, and in even in people in the, who consider Mahayana in some way, or maybe they heard it in a Mahayana institution, but they understood it that way because they couldn't quite cope with the idea. You would, there are several misunderstandings you can have if you say, this is nirvana. You can say, well, what's the big deal? Nirvana makes no difference. So I'm not going to try to do anything special. That's one misunderstanding. Another one is I can do anything I want because this is nirvana. So, you know, then, you know, indulging oneself, you know. And another one is this is all a bunch of BS because um, it sucks here, you know. <laughs> it's not nice. It's not 10%. <laughs> well, right? let, let me just stop you for one second. What do you, when you say nirvana, what do you mean? Oh, nirvana? The extinction of suffering. The, and, and actually what is wonderful about it in terms of our modern hipster culture, when don't ask me for the causality of that, <clears throat> but literally nirvana means being blown out or being blown away. And we use that when we have a wonderful aesthetic experience or some marvelous thing. We say, oh, it really blew me away. So nirvana is ultimate blowing away. So the idea of being ultimately blown away and yet still be here, which is what a Buddha is, they're still here engaging, and they're, and they're one thing. They're so blown away they have no personal desires. So a true Buddha. So the only thing, the reason they're kind of manifesting an embodiment is they notice that other people who actually are intrinsically blown away because they are free and, you know, they're made, their cells are made of bliss, you know, they're not divisible from clear light of the void type of thing. And yet they think they don't have enough and this is awful and then they have to fight and they have to do this and that and they have to, you know, they have to be a narcissist and they have to say, look at me on TV. I'm not making any statement. <laughs> <laughs> but then they'll probably air this after the fact. But, you know, you know. They, I thought you were talking about me. I'll oh, do that. No, I see. I'm talking about myself. And uh, so... Uh, so, uh, so, so that's that's harder to understand. You know? uh, but, but see, the, in the Four Noble Truths, which is also a total Mahayana thing, it isn't like it's not only Theravada thing. But the Mahayana thing, uh, I mean, Four Noble Truths in Theravada, of the th- of the of the four of them, only the third one is ultimate reality, Nirvana, the path, and also the 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 symptom of suffering and the diagnosis of what causes it being the egotism of you know, ignorance you know egotism etc desire and hatred and ego which derive themselves from the egotism and uh, those three are relative universe and only nirvana is absolute so so that the nirvana is actually his discovery not the suffering everybody knew about suffering in his time and today but the idea that there's a way to be free of it and then there's two stages. One, my being free of it means getting out of here, which he allowed people to do that. But And later in the Mahayana, they say that Shariputra and some of his disciples, monk disciples, said, well, if everything is great right here, why didn't you tell us? Why did you tell us? And I thought I was, I was leaving for nirvana type of thing. 
says to him, I thought you were the devil posing as the Buddha, saying it's all here, you know. And then Buddha explained that he had to tell him that because that was the medicine they needed of that type at that time, you know, to feel that they strive to get away from things because they couldn't have conceived of, they were too sensitive, too much engaged in suffering, and they couldn't conceive being everything being perfect here, actually. So I'm going to try to restate just a little bit of that I'm because sure, I'm, sure, always, please, please I'm always sort of paranoid. I, I followed it, but uh, it's fascinating, and there's many more things to discuss. I always just want to make sure that I bring everybody else along. Sure, of course. So of course. <clears throat> Theravada Buddhism is, is, I think, literally the school of the elders. It is the, the, the yeah, kind of Buddhism. Theravada, yeah, in sense, yes. It is the, 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 the kind of Buddhism that was alive, you know, after the Buddha died, uh, about uh, well, 2,600 we, years the, ago. It was publicly alive. Pu- okay. The other was still there, we think. But. Okay, yeah. so mm-hmm. publicly alive. And then um, a couple hundred years later, there's a schism. Mm-hmm. There's a schism, and, and what's born is something called Mahayana, which is known as the great vehicle mm-hmm. of Buddhism. And that is right. what led to Zen and Tibetan right. uh, Buddhism. Right. And, and later Indian Buddhism. And actually, the majority of Theravada Buddhists in India from that time had a Theravada Buddhist vow of a monk, you know, uh, you know, renounce the world. But they were they were adopted uh, Mahayana Buddhist ideology, you could say. So the two got together. Even in Sri Lanka, you had Mahayana in Sri Lanka, even Tantra in Sri Lanka, until in, around nine hundred and something, when there was some political thing, and then it just reverted, and that's when it was all wiped out in India, both Theravada and Mahayana. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. From bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. 
you talked to, I just want to just keep keep going back. You also mentioned the Four Noble Truths. Yes. Uh, that is uh, the Buddha's first big speech after exactly. he got enlightened. Exactly. And he listed these four truths. One is life is suffering, often misunderstood, but basically means that life is unsatisfying if right. you... Unenlightened life. Yeah, unenlightened life is unsatisfying. Right. The second Noble Truth is... Uh, the, the source of that uh, is thirst or craving. Uh, yeah, well, the root source is ignorance, actually. Ignorance. But, but the root manifestation is craving. And then the third is uh, there is... Uh, there the prognosis is, is good. Yes, there is the good news of nirvana. And then mm-hmm. the fourth is these eight, the Eightfold uh, uh, Noble Path, which right. is the eight things you can do to live in an enlightened life. Anyway, that right. is all considered uh, traditionally as part of the old school Theravada stuff, but you're saying it is also oh, sewn right into Mahayana. Totally. And you said something in there that I wanted to get back to, which was yes. that we don't see the. So in the Mahayana conception, the Abuddha is blown out and sticks around to, yes. to help out other beings who are also blown out but don't know it. That's in other right. words, they're right. living in nirvana. Their very cells are part of the bliss void. Right. That's what I wanted to get to. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I wish I really knew, but theoretically speaking, because I don't pretend to really know, but uh, theoretically speaking, it means that, um, you know, it's, it's like the nirvana thing even conveyed in dualistic Buddhism in Theravada. Good news, in other words. The Buddha, the reason Buddhism has been so popular all over the world in the highly populated areas of Asia, which in ancient time were also much more highly populated, uh, is that it is a good news. And the good news is that the default situation in life is good. It's like those versions of, of theism where they say, you know, God is love, God is good. You know, yeah, maybe there's a veil of suffering and there's a devil and you're having trouble, but ultimately God is good which, of course, doesn't fit with the idea of eternal damnation that they put in there to scare people into behaving themselves. But the, but the real positive news, of course, of all the theistic religions is that God presented as ultimate reality is love, therefore will take care of everybody. So Buddha's discovery is the same, except it isn't a person, exactly. It's more like a reality itself. So it's like, you know, in quantum physics, there's an odd concept that they discovered in their mathematical things, that in theory, a vacuum has infinite energy. And the reason it seems to be a vacuum is there's no motion and no action of it, because it's infinite, so everything is already done, something like that. So reality at the deepest level is understood that way by Buddha. That's what nirvana is. And when one is conscious at that level, then it's like, it's total bliss. And every there's no there's no deficit of any kind. There's no... There's no problem. There's no suffering, no sin, no nothing. So pe- people, have the, the original ignorance is I'm really me and the universe is really not me. And, and in a way, therefore, in any kind of stress situation, it's me versus the universe. And the, in such a situation, I lose. It isn't even rocket science. The universe it's always wins. Yeah, what? The universe always wins. Exactly. Even you become president of the United States, you're still going to have debts to pay. You know? <laughs> Never mind. I won't get into that. <laughs> so, so the, you know, things will pursue you. You know, even you know, in other words, you can be God in Buddhist view. Even you become God of a local universe. There'll be another God who'll come and give you a hard time in a bigger universe. <laughs> so, so, so therefore. I forgot what we were talking yeah, about. We're talking about oh, uh, bliss, Nirvana yeah. Bliss. Yeah, Nirvana Bliss. So 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 Buddha was blown away by this discovery that, you know, and he smiled when he fully understood everything. And the, even in Theravada, he tells the story in Theravada about himself as five hundred 
lifetimes as a bodhisattva. And all these are the original Walt Disney stories. You know, Lassie went and saved the guy. The, the old, the old uh, hyena went and saved the lion or the baby frog saved the turtle. I mean, whatever, even at the cost of their own life. So this sort of selfless, altruistic, give yourself away because you have, you have the plenitude of being one with this wonderfully benevolent universe. That's, you know, he told that. But then the, the, where, the, where the Theravada Mahayana difference is, is that, because you did ask about that, is in Theravada, the, he never says to them, you guys will have to do this. You're all going to have to be the frog who gives himself away. You're going to have to be the deer. You're gonna, you have thousands of millions of lifetimes. He tells them there's going to be thousands of lifetimes. But he says, no, you can get out to nirvana because they couldn't bear that idea of having to spend thousands of more lifetimes doing stuff. You know, They couldn't deal with it. So in the Mahayana, he says, everyone that goes through that, you see, everyone's going to have hundreds and thousands and millions of lives like that because the, the entanglement of all beings, of all life is total. There's no escape from it. And yet, so most people couldn't understand that as a positive thing. They would think, oh, my God, I have to wash the dishes forever. You know, <laughs> No way, you know, type thing, you see. So that's why Mahayana was held in reserve the way we understand it. It was held in reserve for four centuries. While, the, you know, they have a bad term that they use uh, for those members of the, of the, not just Theravada, there was other dualistic Buddhist schools in India, 18 of them. And um, and those people, most of them liked the Mahayana idea when they heard about it, and it didn't contradict what they were doing. Just the final, I reinterpreted the final outcome. That's all, and so they mostly liked it. It wasn't a contrary thing, but there were a few who were like against it. And for them, the Mahayana people came up with this idea, Hinayana, which lesser means vehicle. lesser vehicle, yeah, yeah. which is rude, and it just means. But it, it doesn't really mean lesser. Actually, it means deprived. And what it means is they're depriving themselves of the more expanded positive vision of the Mahayana. So they're kind of deprived of that. They're still struggling themselves to get out of here type of thing against, against uh, all odds, you know, I'm going to escape. And uh, th- so I never translate that. I never translate that literally. I call it individual vehicle and the, as opposed to universal vehicle. And it, that shows that universal vehicle needs the individual to become liberated for everyone to become liberated, if you follow me. So it shows how they fit together rather than one is lesser or greater. And because they're really the same, it's just what is your motive? You know, it's like if, you're, if you do some action and your action is just purely for yourself, the level of energy you have in doing it is, can be very great. But if you're doing it for everybody, you know, like the guy in Marathon, you know, who ran to tell the Athenians and then collapsed when he arrived, he was doing it for his whole nation, for his family, for you know, people bigger than themselves. They have more energy in doing it. And uh, so that's the virtue of Mahayana. It's a motivation thing. What evidence have you seen to support the assertion you're making that nirvana is right here, right now? That the, uh, what evidence? Yeah. Well, logically, it makes sense because... Uh, the logical evidence is, which Nagarjuna, the great <coughs> Mahayana philosopher, who was a very adept uh, Theravada monk himself, he said, if nirvana is different from the world, it cannot be the absolute because there's a boundary between it and the world. So if you go to experience, and obviously nirvana is no use if you don't experience it. So therefore, if you have not experienced it and then you cross a boundary and you experience it, You've moved into a different place. So therefore, it cannot be the absolute nature of every place because it's a relative place because it's not here. You follow me? No. Well, if, if some, the absolute is outside of the relative. 
then it's relative to the relative. <laughs> okay. It's yes. simple. Yes. You know, it's like theologians will say God created the world, but he's absolute and he's not doesn't really connect to him. But that's just an assertion they make. It's a, it's a misuse of language if, logically. So I'm just giving you the logical evidence. But do you know anybody who's living in this nirvana yes, state all the time? I think so. Who? But you you can't be sure unless you reach it, of course. But uh, Dalai Lama, for example, or some of my older teachers who passed away now, definitely. I definitely think so. And not only that, but Buddha himself said so. He even hinted it in Theravada literature. In Theravada literature, uh, <clears throat> there's a set of states that are one is called infinite space, another one is infinite consciousness, another one is, be- is absolute nothingness, and another one is beyond consciousness and unconsciousness. These are states, right? That Buddha said this is people can attain this by meditating. They don't have to be Buddhists. They could, they become really one-pointed, strong meditators. They can attain those states. He said, none of them are nirvana, he said. They are not nirvana. In other words, if, it's an, if you think an absolute is some kind of vast thing where you're blown away in the sense of you don't no longer exist, but somehow it's nice, uh, it's not a bad not existing, it's a good one. But uh, in that, that would be infinite space, wouldn't it? Or infinite consciousness. Or even deep sleep, absolute nothingness. Or even beyond being either conscious or unconscious, which would encapsulate all three of those other states. That would be a disappearing absolute. But he clearly said, they are not the absolute. They are not nirvana. They're not the reality. They're just other states, altered states. And if you mistakenly think they are that, you might be reborn in them as a god of the formless realm, bodiless realm. You would seem, feel you had no body because all you would be would be the sense of that state. But you go, that's temporary. You go in it with a cause of meditative practices, and eventually you'll come out of it. But so if, if nirvana is... Uh, available to people like the Dalai Lama and a few older monks who no longer. No, no, with it's us, available but, to all of us. But well, you've been doing this no, for a long I, time. No, what, I, but I have on? a consolation prize. What's that? Well, I'll tell you because this is ten percent happier. I'm supposed to write a book about it, and I will. But uh, for some reason, I haven't. But I have. I, have con- I console myself for failing to have attained this. And that is, I have enough of a hint about it, both logically, philosophically, even I would say scientifically, to be sure that I will. Sometime. In in this lifetime? No. It could be another lifetime. In the infinite bunch of lifetimes I'm confronting, facing, having to do. So given infinite time, even a dodo like me will find <laughs> figure it out. Right? What, what, so wait, yeah, wait, wait. No, no, listen. No, sorry, go ahead. So the minute I do, because it's the ultimate case, you know you've had something, which when you learned it, you thought, oh, I always knew that. I just wasn't paying attention. Oh, I knew that. We, we feel that way sometimes about people, you know. Somebody turns out to be a pain or they turn out to be nicer than we're sort of acting with them. And then, we, then when they, we realize that they are either more of a pain or more nice, we say, oh, I always knew that. We feel that way, right? So it's like you know something, but in a way it's not a new thing. You, you, you realize once you know it that you always did. So nirvana is the ultimate one of those in the sense that it has to have always been here. We have to always have been in it according to the theory. So when we realize that we were in it, we realize that at some level we already knew it. And that, of course, connects very well to what the Zen people really mean by that it's just ordinary consciousness. You know, They don't mean the ordinary ordinary. They mean this is the real ordinary. This is the realer ordinary. You know, that's what they mean. And uh, 
And they're, they, they're really based on that. They're not simplistically thinking that they're just resigned to running around relatively. And like some modern Zen people pretend there's no future life and we don't need that. And that's just ridiculous. That's old fashioned. And we're a brave bunch of materialists. And that's not what it is. And, you know, we just, it's, uh, and so my consolation is that when I do re- re- realize nirvana, I will realize I was always in nirvana. And therefore, I will be able to remember in my infinite previous lives, the way Buddha did under the tree in the Theravada literature. Under the Bodhi tree when he achieved yeah. his enlightenment. Three yeah. things he realized. Remembered all infinite previous lives. Everybody else's infinite previous lives. Second thing, remember that? Which means he knew he was entangled with them because beginningless infinite means we've all done everything with each other forever. And why don't we remember it? Because we suffered in those lives. They were painful. We were dying. We were freaking out about it. We were losing friends. We were losing everything. And But when you realize nirvana, you realize that just by being a cellular being, a sensitive being, whatever, even a bacteria, you were in nirvana. You were floating in this bliss sea of ocean. So that's my consolation. I don't feel I'm in nirvana now. When I do feel I'm in nirvana, I'll realize and I'll revise my experience of this time, and I will enjoy being with you here in the show as nirvana retroactively. That's my consolation prize. All these things you're saying about the <laughs> infinite previous lifetimes, infinite future lifetimes, I, I'm yeah. going to repeat my question. Where are you seeing the evidence for this? Evidence? Yeah, like why do you, well, why do you assert this? Where would this there so be evidence for a limit? Wittgenstein, who was one of my mentors before I encountered Buddhism, he, oh, he said even in his early work, before he was doing investigations where he was more critical, he was still trying to be a kind of realist philosopher. And he said, uh, a boundary implies there's something on the other side of the boundary. The idea of a boundary with only something on this side is not sensible, makes no sense. So infinity is actually the rule rather than the exception. You know, the, the scientists can do, say as much as they like. Oh, yeah, they're, oh, they know they're running away from us and we'll never see them, but so they must not be there, you know. You know, the stars, you know, that are the light, they're, they're moving away so fast that the light can't reach us, you know, the light year travel, light speed travel, right? So that's just, uh, people assert all these kind of things, you know. Big Bang came from nothing. They started with, like, Genesis. They wanted to be something from nothing, you know. But that doesn't make sense. Nothing is not a place to be a source of something. You know, even theists who say God made the universe out of nothing, God was there. So obviously he made it out of himself. You know, and they're all, when they're being practical, they say law of thermodynamics. No energy is newly created. No energy can ever be destroyed. So infinity, is. there's evidence for infinity in our daily life. Everything is continuous. Everything is infinite. And, and consciousness, therefore, the idea that consciousness is just limited to the brain is itself the exceptional idea. And it's the, it, everything else, all energy is... It's consciousness have no energy. Is that what it is? It's a non-energetic thing. We don't think so when we're conscious. We feel we have energy. So, so that's that's my evidence. You know, continuity. That's the evidence for forming future life. They, your materialists will tell you MIT, Stephen Pinker, any all of them. They'll say, oh, there's no evidence for forming future life. There's tons of evidence for forming future life. Many people remember previous lives. Many people do, and they're documented them in all kinds of cultures, even when they don't have a formal idea of it you know, like a formal theory of it. And, oh, Uncle Joe, yeah, I was Uncle Joe. You know, a lot of people, a lot of cultures, there's documented cases all over the place, plus many in Asia. It's a normal thing. And continuity is normal. 
for something to become nothing is abnormal. It, that's a sort of irrational assertion, actually. Okay. Food for thought. Okay. Uh, uh, but <laughs> let me just loop back to, we were talking sure. about kind of the history sure, sure. of the Dharma. We, yeah. start, we, ta- we started with the old school, then we talked about the Mahayana, yes. the greater vehicle. And then you mentioned that Buddhism essentially got wiped out in India where it yes. started. Yes. Uh, how did it get to Tibet and what did Tibet, what was Tibet, t- talk to me about Tibet. Well, that's the, the amazing of thing. Tibetans <clears throat> were very successful conquerors. They're like Genghis Khan of their time in the mid-first millennium of the Common Era. And um, the Chinese trembled in fear. They conquered the capital of China one time, even. They conquered the whole Silk Route down into Nepal, Bengal, all over the place. They were, they were very fierce and nasty. And uh, then at one point, one of their emperors kind of reached the one lucky thing about them as far as their neighbors went was they liked living at three miles altitude. You know, the less oxygen gives you a kind of high, I guess, or something. They didn't want to settle down on top of anybody, you know. So they stayed up there. But they would loot and pillage, and they were feared and despised by people for that reason. But then once they sort of maxed out their conquest of where they felt comfortable and had enough loot and pillage, the ruler, the main ruler, said, listen, this is not really a nice way of living. And they noticed that all around them, in the Silk Route states, in China, in in, uh, India, Buddhism was providing a kind of matrix of being more civilized, trying to be more altruistic, being more friendly. It was like it was like the Christianity of the place all around them. So they said, well, let's look at that. Where's the source of it? India. Oh, let's send some people down there. Let's get a writing system. Then let's translate their books. And let's practice mindfulness. And let's get the previous life of Dan Harris to, <laughs> to, go, to go down there and study them and find out what makes them 10% happier. <laughs> And then they started stopping conquering people, and they cheered up. And they started having a happier time, and they decided that it's not so nice to go and beat people up and steal their stuff, and we have enough stuff here, and it's pleasant here, and we know we can. And, and, and especially, of course, when you're a warrior culture conquering things, you're inevitably internally nasty to your women and your children because they are not fighting on your front line for you because they don't have the strength to most of them, some Amazons, but most of them don't. And so then you beat up on them. And then once you beat up on them, they are unhappy and you're going to have a miserable life. And the cultures that were today on the world where we're having terrible times are where women are not properly listened to, as we noticed, you know, right? As we can notice. As Nicholas Kristof has so eloquently, and Cheryl Wooden have eloquently taught in their wonderful book. And so... So um, so then the Tibetans started calming down bit by bit. They got turned into self-conquest instead of conquering others, which is what the Buddha teaches you. And, uh, and then they, they did lose their empire for that because they weren't so nasty, gradually lost it. But they were very happy with this sort of inner empire of, of, uh, of 100% happier, some yes. of them, and mm-hmm. others 10% happier. And that very colorful culture that you see in the paintings and in the dances and in the... And it, it, it's just, uh, it, it shows a kind of ecstatic thing. You know, I, I remember uh, when we did a big art show, Tibet House did a big art show in London in the Royal Academy. We were attacked by the Chinese embassy, as usual. And, but the guy who was Lord somebody, who was not Lord Ennold or Lord somebody who was a New York Times, a London Times guy before Murdoch, he said, he wrote a thing called Art of Freedom. And he said that in these 10th and 11th century paintings and 9th century, even 9th century paintings from Tibet, we see this beautiful, exquisite energy and colors. It's wonderful. And then in England at that time, all we were doing was painting ourselves blue with woad. 
<laughs> and, you know, he was admiring the culture and he called it the art of freedom. You know, so they, that, that's what radiates from the Tibetan people, this kind of energy of many percent happier, you know. And uh, basically, and I, I've even seen it so poignantly even under conquest today, under occupation, where you have a Tibetan guy who's just bowed every three feet for uh, 1,100 miles from far eastern Tibet, and all dusty and thin and clearly not well fed, with a few teeth here and there, and, and it reached Lhasa, and he's going around the temple there, and he's like, grinning from ear to ear. It's like he's so happy. And then looking at him are some police guys, you know, the local police guys looking like, eh, like what's this guy? Is he going to like get out of hand? You know, is he going to do something? And they're all little tricks, you know, like this. And they're totally miserable looking. You know, if you just see, it's just, it's incredible, you know. So, so that's, what, that's why Tibet adopted the Dharma. And then because they're very smart, individualistic people, because they had to be living at high altitude, nomadic, you know, semi-nomadic with their yaks and things, in a rather sparse economy, but never, never a disaster economy, actually. And less invaded and occupied, they never had a famine in their history, you know. It was very balanced. And although they ate too much meat, you know, and um, because of being nomads, grazing animals, you know. But... Um, so they, so, um, uh, what? I <laughs> well, forgot. No, no, you, you They're pretty jolly. The- oh, then they inflicted the same thing on the Mongolians. And over four, they, it took them a thousand years to finally demilitarize, you could say, Tibet, mm-hmm. basically. And the demilitarize meaning internally, mentally themselves demilitarize and become much more happy in their social life. And, uh. And then, uh, then they, the Mongolians, it only took four or five centuries with the Tibetans working and teaching them mindfulness, you know, basically. It's basically mindfulness. It's the start. You know? Do you think that kind of trajectory that you described in Tibet and then Mongolia could take place in the West? Of course. It is taking place in the West and worldwide, actually. And it's there underground in, in communist China. It's hugely, Tibetan lamas are immensely popular. And they have big followings, even party members who sneak off and do some meditating. And uh, they have, of course, their Chinese Buddhist masters and teachers who are fine. And, uh, and um, you know, everywhere it's, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, when he went back to Vietnam, which were, you know, doggedly communist, but now in the phase of being communist capitalist, um, you know, export platform sort of place, um, the population went nuts to see him and then they clamped down on him because the communist overlords didn't like that, you know, if you know the story, you know. So, I mean, people want to be happier, you know. That's what they want. And making money and working day and night and being a slave of the state is not make you happy. But there are, people are grasping onto ideologies that they think make them happier, but that are, I think, pretty obviously bad, like right. um, uh, uh, nihilistic Islam sure. and uh, versions of Islam that kind of twist the whole thing and, Absolutely. and make, it, make it super even, violent. Yeah, so even, it, even some nasty Buddhists <clears throat> in Sri Lanka nowadays and, and in Burma. Yes, absolutely. And being nasty to the Muslims. Yes, yes, yeah, to the Rohingya. Terrible. Dalam is very upset. There are nasty Tibetans. Come on. No, not every Tibetan is a saint. You know, they're Nazi Tibetans. And yet you think that the But Dharma... they're going, oh, money, pay me home while they're picking your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> they're mindfully, mindfully, mindfully being mean to you. And, so, yeah. But you think the Dharma, mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, could become this uh, incredibly constructive force of in course. the West? Of course. Mindfulness, it's not really mindfulness. Actually, the word is remembering. You know, sati, 
you know, in Pali. Sati is Smriti. the ancient It actually term. means remembering. Yeah. That's all it means. So it means remembering you're here, you know, uh-huh. and remembering where you are, not just your mind wandering vaguely here, there, and thither, you know, basically. And, um, and so once you become more aware of yourself, then you become more compassionate to yourself. And you realize, like, oh, I'm driving myself nuts to become president, and I'm having a horrible time. And you don't necessarily, you, you will maybe listening to your body and stuff, you might decide not to do that. You know, it wouldn't be worth it. You know, you sort of look at the past president and watch how their hair turns white in like three months, et cetera. And you decide maybe that's not the way to do it or whatever. Some I get a billion dollars and then I, and I only have one and I'm not even on Ford's list and I have 10. <laughs> you know, I mean, those are not making these people happy. But I pick up in some of what you're saying here and in, and in also in some of what I've read from you a little bit of a sort of anti-ambition, you know, like don't try to get rich. That's a folly. No, don't try no. Bodhisattva wants to get rich so they can give money to people. Define Bodhisattva. A bodhisattva means one who is a hero for enlightenment. And, uh, and the bodhisattvas were, Marx Weber was wrong. They had a very capitalist ethic. Buddhists have not only that, Buddhists have wealth deities that you do rituals and then jewels, sacks of jewels, you know, wrapped up in a yak's intestine fall out of the sky, <laughs> you know, all this kind of thing. And Chinese people do too. They have, uh, they have, uh, you know, those in front of those big temples, they have those guardian kings and those are wealth gods. So know? it's okay to have a sack of jewels wrapped up in a yak intestine, but the, uh, the, the motivation should be to share. That's right. And actually, I, but personally, I, but I argue, and Max Weber would agree with me, the great sociologist, that is the root of capitalism, actually. Capitalism means, is based on a kind of asceticism, according to sociological smart people. And it's not based on greed of, I'm going to consume more, and I'm going to, it's based on someone who consumes less than they produce. Therefore, that creates capital. And so it's self-restraint, and it's, he called it inner-worldly asceticism, Max Weber, very brilliantly. He thought that the Asian people didn't have it. That's why Europe was beating them up. But uh, he didn't realize that it was because they didn't use the technology to go and conquer other people. China was way out in America and all over the world long before Columbus with much bigger ships. But they, did, they liked being in China. They didn't want to. Whereas people from England, the food they had to eat before they conquered India was sucked. <laughs> they had no spices. They had no curry. They had, it was terrible. So, so you're not anti-ambition, trying no. to succeed or... Or no. make money, or be- become famous. I mean, your daughter's famous. Yeah, yeah. Well, she—that was natural with her. She told me she would when she was three. This karma, former life. She did. When she was three, she was picking out expensive dresses in the dress shop. Somebody who just come from India, and she was picking out every dress was hundred and forty dollars. There were thirty, forty, fifty dollar dresses in there. I was a penniless professor. My wife was a penniless ex ex model, and she's going zig, zig, zig like this. And I'm going, like, look at my wife like this. What are we going to do? And then the little girl looks at me and says, Oh, don't worry, Daddy. When I grow up, I'll be a famous movie star and buy all my own clothes. <laughs> but she was right. Well, we didn't think so, of course, at the time. But there was something going on there, you know. But you, so you don't think it's a pointless, egocentric exercise to try to become famous, to try to become Well, rich. it's a motivation. You know, If you're doing it because you're a narcissistic bag of neurosis, a, you will not really become famous for the right things. You know, you'll, you'll become famous maybe for some wrong things. If you're doing it just out of joy and wanting to, do, you know, be able to give more, be more, see other people happy, you don't, you don't mind being happy yourself about whatever it is, you know, too, but you're sort of doing it in a grander way, 
and with a, with a motivation for more than yourself, something greater than yourself, then no, there's no problem with that. And you, and you will find satisfaction, but the satisfaction clearly comes if you become more mindful, more remembering how your own self really is. You will realize that the real joy is when you establish the Rockefeller Foundation and start giving things away mm-hmm. to people and that's and seeing their joy that's or christmas is when you see a little kid open the present and you know then you're happy to be able to buy them a good one but that's when you feel better because when it's just when i got something you you can buy maybacks like what's his name that guy who shouldn't be on the radio you know you buy six maybacks but why you buy six because one once you have one it's like somebody dents it it's like somebody dropped a cigarette over here like it's no good anymore once you get scrapped for yourself, you're dissatisfied immediately. It's not enough. And uh, so so you're heading for endless dissatisfaction, even though you accumulate. Whereas if you accumulate to just be a bigger thing, because you, you, you know, like my friend Mark Benioff, he started his thing with... Salesforce. His, yeah, the, yeah. He started his <clears throat> company with the idea that he would give away a certain percent of equity, profit. Is he doing that? Yeah, he is. He is. My wife though said ten percent would be better, but he didn't. He didn't listen to <laughs> I that. I like yet. that number. But he has done great stuff. Mobile. He started the cloud. You know, he started the Google thing because he has. He fundamentally sticks to an altruistic thing about about business. That business is based on satisfying the people who are your clients and customers. And when they get happy, then they give you the positive feedback, and you make more money, and then they do well. And and that and the idea that you're in business to grab away from them. To use their investments, like to do leverage for yourself or whatever, or give them false advice, and getting things, you know, exploitive is short term. And the crazy, the crazy guys who are distorting Muhammad's nice teaching, which has lasted for a thousand years more and helped lots of people, uh, who are turning into this death cult, you know, uh, they that won't last. And it had there been them pre- they were the Ashashins previously, and it didn't last. It doesn't last. But unfortunately, it arises here and there. Uh, what is your practice like? Your My meditation practice? practice? <clears throat> um, it's not that good. That's why I haven't attained nirvana. <laughs> so are you? Are you? Do you do it every day? Yes, you, I do. I try. How, how much? I do. Uh, well, I I spend time, especially at before sleep. I have. I especially do. I do also during the day, in between things, briefly. Uh, I do in the early morning. So those three times. But you know, when I'm teaching and uh, I'm trying to create Tibet house and make it last, you know, and struggling, trying to, you know, the Dalai Lama senior teacher told me after I did a retreat once in India, and who he wrote the retreat manual, and I thanked him, and he said, I didn't write it. I said, what do you mean? He said, my former life wrote it, because I said, I was pointing to his name on it, he said, it was his former life, and I said, I never have time to write a book like that, or do a retreat even, he said, because I'm always working for the government. <laughs> Being the government in exile, he was the head of a huge order in the government in exile, and usually that's a three-year term. He'd been there like twelve years or something, and uh, then he looks up balefully at me and he says, "You too." He says, "You'll never have any time until His Holiness's wishes are fulfilled." He said to me, "So you know what that means? His wishes are fulfilled it means that his people are happy in Tibet because Chinese are being nice to them. That's what it means." I'm coming back to that. You asked me about that. I want to just circle back to that briefly. I just wanted to say sure. that we love Xi Jinping. We are waiting for Xi Jinping to pivot toward Tibet and toward Buddhism. And everyone else has given up thinking he's just really the monster. He's the new Mao, blah, blah, blah. They go on and on about it. 
and I'm not, I can't, I don't want to take time to go into the analysis, but his father was close friends of the Dalai Lama when Dalai Lama was 24 years old. And he was born one year before Dalai Lama spent almost a year in Beijing. So I, I have this vision of Dalai Lama blessing the one-year-old in the father's arms, you know. Although it was a big commie, right? So he couldn't be asking for a blessing from a Buddhist guy. But of course they did, you know. Mao, even Mao in them, you know, in their way. And uh, so Xi Jinping said when his father was busted for being part of Hu Yaobang's policy in the early 80s of being nice to the Tibetans, where there was this brief window of the early 80s after the Gang of Four went down and when Deng was paying attention to other things and hoping also Dalai Lama would come back. Uh, during that time, the father was very involved in being nicer to Tibet. And then he was busted by Deng when Deng hardened about that and imprisoned even, and been treated badly by the Communist Party. And at the time, the young Xi Jinping said, I will fix this in my life. My father shouldn't have this thing. So we still think he will make a turn when he has the power to do it, to turn the machinery, the sort of stuck old colonialist thing in the Communist Party of control those minority because we want to keep their land, you know. So we have to crush them, you know, which is what's still going on. And we think he will change it. So I'm very optimistic. But if he doesn't manage, if they get, if the gangsters get him or if he becomes a gangster once he has the power, then it won't last. He won't last. And we will have to wait for another one. But uh, it's been waiting a long time, since 1959, for niceness to ensue. But China was awfully nice, you know, in different periods during ancient time. You know. It was a nice place. You take a long view of history. Yeah, you have to. It's been such a pleasure to sit and talk to you. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't ask? Well, how about ten percent? You can no. hold forth on that as much. No, as No, no, no. But <clears throat> I think it's true. Well, what I was trying to say on that one was this thing about the mindfulness and remembering. Actually, some of my colleagues up at Columbia are having a conference soon calling "Beyond the Hype," and they're all going to sit there and rag on the mindfulness movement about how it's not real Buddhism and all this kind of thing, you know, and it shouldn't be, you know, proselytized, it shouldn't be prostituted to commercial aims, to have people more productive in the office and all this kind of thing. But I don't agree with them, and uh, they know that, so I'm not, I'm not presenting the counter view. But even any, it's like yoga. Some people complain, oh, people just go to yoga to, you know, guys just go to pick up girls, or they just think it's calisthenics, or, you know, it's not, they're not doing the real sacred yoga thing. But that's, not, that's stupid. Anything that people do to become more aware of their health, to become more aware of how their mind is working, to become more, a little bit more restrained and control of how the mechanisms that cause them to have powerful emotions, which sometimes sweep them off their feet where they then get into trouble or they make trouble. You know, anything that increases such self-awareness, that's a kind of service that Tibet, India, China, Japan, Asia, you know, the Buddhist culture would like to offer. And actually, the Catholic culture, kind of, the, any monastic culture, the Sufi culture, anywhere where people are trying to live at a higher level in some concentrated way, um, they have something to offer. And we, we have been going on our culture, even based so last night at a benefit I was at, then Siegel said about, I didn't realize that, Hippocrates even said, mind is just the brain. Materialism goes all the way back there to Greece, you know, Hippocrates. I didn't quite realize. I thought the Greeks had a little platonic spiritual idea. I think many of them did, but apparently not Hippocrates. And uh, uh, that, so therefore we think we're going to be 
solves everything problem when we have a new TV, we have better air conditioning, bigger house, more friends, more more land, more conquests, more things. You know, we keep looking outside for satisfaction. And but those satisfactions are not satisfying long term. Egocentric based driven satisfactions are automatically and we know it, you know, when we're blown away, even at a concert or even at a museum, some have an aesthetic experience, it ends the minute we turn to think, how blown away was I? How good was it? How yeah. good was it compared to the last concert? Exactly, yeah. or how could could have been, you know, you know, how how could it have been with a different girlfriend, you know, a boyfriend or whatever, you know what I mean? So so therefore, any degree of self-awareness that anybody attains through whatever method and without what, and coming from whatever source, that will benefit them, and that is helpful to them. So it's really wonderful that being 10% or even 1% happier is better than no percent happier because the, we're actually in a culture where we're told that it's not even safe to be happy. It's not even legal to be happy. It's a big shock. Pursuit of happiness, said Jefferson. Although somebody told me that he didn't really write that. He wrote Pursuit of Property, uh. according to John Locke, Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Property, Sanctity of Property. And somebody said that's kind of too jive, you know, like put in, throw in happiness. I don't know who. I heard that, but that might be false. <laughs> Maybe Sally Hemings told him that. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, but uh, so, so I'm in really 100% in favor of this sort of thing. And I don't think those sort of orthodox Buddhists, is not, they're not pretending to be Buddhists. They're just pretending to be more aware of themselves. You know? Well, I mean, obviously, I firmly agree. I appreciate you saying it. And I'm of the view that um, there's a lot more than 10% happier or just uh, using mindfulness to be more focused and productive at work. But you can't, you got to start somewhere. You right. got to start where people are. Of course. And the Orthodox Buddhism, there's a reason why I never heard about it or cared about it because no, I didn't. T speak to me where I was, and right. so, but I'm getting closer and closer to uh, deep end of the pool Buddhism. Why? Because I started somewhere. Because I right. got in the pool in the first place. Right. right and right. so that's that. Well, Dalai Lama makes a big thing about. It. He doesn't want people to depart their grandmother's religion mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it will upset grandma. So whatever you learn, like learn it in whatever one's religion is. You know? Yeah, learn it in whatever and, context. Uh, and in that sense, I always reassure him that I wasn't really religious, so he didn't <laughs> steal me from the Protestants. When I became a monk, my mom said, oh, I should have known. When we took you to the brick church on Park Avenue 89th Street to be baptized, you made such a fuss and you kicked up your feet and you knocked over the little urn, thing, like a little uh -huh. dish that they have there with a uh, little feet, you know, that has the uh -huh. water in it, and you drenched the priest's cassock. And he was all moved out, and he just wrung out a few drops on flailing feet. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so anyway, it uh, was my previous <laughs> life. Not to be blamed on. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Dan. And thank you for uh, all, of, all of your writing and teaching, which I have absorbed over the years. It's been oh, a huge you. contribution. That's and a, nice. a, a tremendous pleasure to sit and talk with you. It is a great pleasure to talk with you. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, 
and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.